A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on further suspected Ukrainian drone strikes in Russia, bring you the latest diplomatic updates from around the world, and analyse the UK's Ministry of Defence's view that Russia is ceding the initiative in its war in Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 31st of May, one year and 96 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dominic Nichols, and Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start. Uh, We're going to predominantly stay inside Russia, actually. A lot of things going bang. But let's start the Fipsky oil refinery. So we're in southern Russia here. We're about 100 k's. 100 k's east-southeast of the Kirsch Bridge. A large fire there broke out after what the local Russian governor said was a Ukrainian drone strike. So the governor, Venyamin Kondryatev, said the fire was soon put out, no casualties. But this refinery is pretty close to the Russia's Black Sea naval port of Novorossiysk. You'll remember that's where the Kilo-class subs have been moved to because they're no longer... Russia feels they're no longer safe in Sevastopol. And it's also near, this, this the Afipsky oil refinery that, that's gone up in smoke, is near the Isky oil refinery. That's about 10 k's away, a bit closer to Ukraine. That The reports there, that was hit by a drone overnight. No casualties or damage reported there, but um, two oil refineries that have been that have been targeted. Next, let's go to uh, Shebekino. So this is we're now about 50 k's northeast of Kharkiv. We're just over the border inside Russia, about five k's over the border. So this area is 50, 60 k's east of the where that border incursion was last week. So the Kremlin said that the area around Shebekino was hit by shelling. It says they are concerned. There was they're concerned by shelling in the region, and the governor, local governor, said there were four injured. 
local buildings damaged roofs, eight-story apartment building damaged, four homes and a school, they reported. We've no way of verifying this. But obviously this... There's a bit of a momentum here. This is a day after that mysterious drone attack on Moscow, which we still don't really know what, what on earth was going on there. Washington, in response to that last one, that yesterday's yesterday's drone incident around around Moscow to the southwest in the southwestern suburbs of Moscow, the White House press secretary Karen Jean Pierre said, uh, "We do not support attacks inside of Russia. That's it. Period." So very clear messaging there from Washington. And um, Russia's ambassador to the US has said, accused Washington of uh, encouraging terrorists in Kiev by publicly ignoring the drone attack. So they've not ignored that. Now, I don't know how that would, would encourage them anyway. But anyway, very clear signalling from the US. This all feeds into that um, that debate around, the, the, the as we understand it, the US and the Western supporters for Ukraine insisting that their weapons can't be used inside Russia fears of escalation we'll hear about um we'll hear hear more from uh, Reket Medvedev a bit later but yeah so so a response there from the White House but you know yet another day with drone strikes across a number of areas in Russia and uh, well drone strikes and shelling I'll take a pause there thanks very much Dom Francis you've been off for a few days from the podcast well we've all been off actually so can you just talk us through some of the major diplomatic and political updates from your side thanks David yes a lot to get through Unsurprisingly, considerable debate this morning in political circles regarding the strategic advantages or disadvantages of these drone strikes on Moscow if Ukraine or pro-Ukrainian elements are responsible, as well as considerable discussion as to the ethical considerations of said attacks. Dom referenced the robust response from the White House that it does not support attacks inside of Russia, but elsewhere within the Western alliance there are differences of opinion. The British Foreign Secretary has said Ukraine has a right to project force beyond its own borders. James Cleverley, speaking in Estonia, said Kyiv striking within Russia would undermine Moscow's ability to continue its war in Ukraine. And I'll explore in a moment reasons why one might think that. Important to emphasise, though, that Ukraine continues to officially deny these attacks, though there do seem to be quite a lot of officials online who take pleasure in them. And whilst this may sound like an obvious point, I do think it's important to emphasise that whilst government officials may say publicly one thing, it may differ what they're saying in private and indeed what they know in private as well. And that may be true in Washington. It may be true in London. It may be true in Ukraine. So just important to emphasise that. Take everything with a great handful of salt, not just a pinch. Now, those who are more sympathetic of these strikes argue the idea Moscow somehow constitutes an illegitimate target is bizarre. They argue Kyiv is experiencing strikes against civilian targets on an almost daily basis, often killing women and children. They argue Putin sought to kill Zelensky and decapitate his government. They argue that strikes designed to remind Putin he's not invulnerable would make logical sense, as well as waking up the Russian population to the reality of this war and tighten the screws on the Kremlin, toppling Putin being They argue a legitimate and vital war aim for lasting peace. After all, we hear again and again that people in Moscow care little about what they perceive as a distant war. It would perhaps be understandable if Zelensky wanted to put pressure on the regime 
And if that sounds naive, imagine for a moment the implications if missiles started dropping on the capital of whichever country you're listening from around the world, whether that be London, in Washington, in Europe, in Canada. It would have massive, massive implications politically almost overnight. So just worth reflecting on that, I think. Supporters of the strikes also argue that it may be strategically necessary, given the Western sanctions and that they've not yet brought the reality of this war home to many Russians and that it's a moment to show strength as the Ukrainian army prepares for the counteroffensive. Kyiv must know that it doesn't have infinite time to win. Every month that passes threatens war fatigue amongst its Western allies, most notably, of course, the United States. So that's one side. The other, of course, is saying that these strikes are... In, well, war crime, fundamentally, even if they're not intended for civilian targets, they are by the very nature of them hitting them. They also argue that it is counterproductive, that it's likely to rally Russians to Putin's cause and encourage people to enlist and to support the war. They cite the dangers of Ukraine losing its moral superiority something which comes with huge, huge strategic advantages for gaining military supplies from the West. And so this is a huge debate and point of contention, what we're seeing here. And I think it is one of the first examples we've perhaps seen of a very clear division between certain elements in the broader Western alliance about whether these are legitimate or illegitimate. Now, interestingly, the Kyiv-based foreign security analysis analyst, sorry, Jimmy Rushton, has written a piece for us examining the likelihood that Ukraine was behind this because some people have been saying that actually it would be impossible for Ukraine to be behind this, that their drones are not capable of doing this. He questions that. He says the drones we know Ukraine have a range of 800 kilometres, which puts Moscow well within reach from inside Ukraine's own borders. Although that does still important to emphasize that there are people who are saying that actually these missiles may have been launched from inside Russia by people who are supportive of Kyiv. It doesn't necessarily mean they had to have come from Ukraine. But nonetheless, it's important to emphasize that Ukraine is believed to have this capability and that actually perhaps Kyiv has more of a drone capability than many realised. He cites a source in Ukrainian military intelligence speaking on condition of anonymity that there were multiple independent teams of Ukrainian engineers developing their own versions of drones, that whilst we've seen lots of previous strikes on a smaller scale, including the oil refinery in Rostov in June last year, of course the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol in July last year, that this, these attacks actually were quite advanced, given obviously that they were broadly successful. And this also shows just what Ukraine are capable of if they are behind it. Because of the sheer scale of it, more than a dozen drones were reportedly used, revealing a more mature capability than many believed that Kiev possessed. So uh, it's a big question, this. Is you, if Ukraine is capable of them, have they done it? If they have, should they have? And as I say, there are important consequences either way. And sometimes those consequences are unpredictable. I remember 
I'm pretty sure I may have referenced this before, and if I have, forgive me. But it's an interesting example from the Second World War, which I know we've talked about a lot recently, where the Allies chose to strike Berlin when Molotov was visiting Hitler, Molotov being the Russian foreign secretary. And there was a, it was hugely embarrassing for Hitler that they had to go into a bunker to shield themselves from these Allied attacks when it was a pivotal moment in the war, when Britain was supposedly about to be knocked out and that the Battle of Britain was about to be won for Germany and that therefore there was no need for the Soviet Union to worry about its relationships with Germany because the war would soon be over. And actually, Molotov supposedly asked Hitler, if the war is over, then why are we in a bunker? And this so enraged Hitler that he then decided that he would move from striking the targets of British airfields to then striking the cities like London and Coventry and Norwich, where I'm from. And in so doing, it was obviously extremely devastating for those cities, but they could take it, they could absorb that. Whereas actually, we were only perhaps a few weeks away from having to sort of capitulate given the attacks on the airfield. So I only mention that to say that sometimes you cannot predict the implications of said strikes. And so that's, of course, what makes them so dangerous. But anyway, I digress. It's a really big open discussion, this. And also, I should say that Ukraine are talking a lot about drones at the moment, because they're also approving a sanctions package against Iran as a consequence of the drones that have been provided to Russia by them. There's a lot of other notable uh, diplomatic updates, David, but I'll take a breath there and have a sip of tea. Thanks very much for that, Francis. Thank you very much for talking us through all the all the arguments on one side and the other. I think that was a really useful summation of where different players stand here. Dom, can I come back to you? The British Ministry of, of Defence puts out its sort of daily update of what it's been looking at and what it's been thinking, and it's done so ever since the full-scale invasion began. I thought today's was especially interesting because it took a bit of a step back and looked at the events of the last sort of six to eight weeks, putting it into a bit more of a uh, strategic structure of a way of thinking about what's happening. As a daily podcast, often I think we struggle to do this because we go, what's the news? What's happening? What does that mean? So could you talk us through what the British Ministry of Defence think has been happening over the past weeks and months and where that puts us strategically when it comes to the war? Yeah, sure. So this is today's tweet, daily tweet from UK Defence Intelligence. I think if if you follow um, at Ministry of Defence or something like that, you'll find it. British Ministry of Defence put out a daily defence intelligence um, tweet or or thread rather. And they're saying today that, that well, they're noting as we as we started today's episode with about these these continued strikes inside Russia. They note that since the start of May this year, well, they're suggesting that Russia has increasingly ceded the initiative in the conflict. That's their words, and they are now reacting to Ukrainian action rather than actively progressing to their own towards their own war aims. So this month alone, we've seen Russia launch twenty nights of kamikaze drones, whatever you want to call them. And thank you, Craig from Brisbane, who suggests instead of kamikaze drone, call them Grenade Terminal Flying Ordnance, or GTFO for short. But 20 nights of these drones and cruise missile attacks against Ukraine. There was a daylight raid yesterday or Monday. But that's what they're doing at the moment. That seems to be all they can do when they get a another load in from Shahid 131 and 136 from Iran. They then you know, sort of blat them off, seemingly to doesn't knit together into any great operational plan they seem wedded to russia still seems wedded to its maximalist war aims there are still i still understand people i speak to think that there are still 
those planning in Russia's Ministry of Defence for who, which Russian officer is going to be in charge of this when they get to Kiev and who's going to be in charge of that and who's going to do power and water and blah. Now, whether or not that's because they still hold these maximalist aims or just because they're a very hierarchical structure and no one's told them to stop, we don't know. But, I mean, they, they still... It's just not knitted together. But what they are, what they do seem to be doing is that they are they're transitioning onto the defensive. So they are building some very deep defensive lines. We don't know how good they are, but very deep defensive lines across a huge front. I mean, over a thousand kilometer front. That's where the front seems to be at the moment. And Russia seems to be trying to transition onto the defensive to hold what they've got. They're not in any way trying to knit together any small or medium-sized operations to to push further on. So they might still have these maximalist aims and might be trying to work out who who gets to live in in which large building in, in Kiev. But there's really no no evidence at all of them of those higher aims translating into military activity. So UK UK defence intelligence is saying that Russia has had little success in its likely aims of neutralising Ukraine's much improved air defensive air defences in, in a bid to destroy the forthcoming or the forces that are assigned for the forthcoming counterattack. And they say that on the ground, it has had to redeploy security forces to react to partisan attacks inside Western Russia. So the whole, I mean, I I don't know if they're necessarily trying to neutralise Ukraine's air defence or just wear down the stocks of missiles, because it takes a a while to to build these missiles for um, patriots and, and what have you. If they're all used up, then clearly there's nothing left in the locker. So that might be. I think I'm more inclined to think that's what Russia are trying to do rather than neutralise them. But who knows? Because it doesn't. None of it makes sense. But I think the the bigger picture is if you take if you take a step back, then there's there's almost no considered offensive action. Nothing leads to something which builds to this, which results in that aim. Pause. Go again. Take something else. It, it all seems to be ad hoc just sort of stabbing out almost kind of Roman legionnaire style from the porcupine you know just stabbing out trying to kill what you can whilst actually not going anywhere and not having any designs to go anywhere but rather invest in that defense as we said so if that's what they are doing then maybe Russia might be looking to or Putin might be looking to try and hang on to what what he's got he's not got the four oblast that he that he said he needed to go and defend and he's, he's done the referendum and all that nonsense but he wants the land corridor always wanted the land corridor to Crimea that's where the forces are at the moment he might be trying to solidify that front and then eventually transition into some kind of negotiated peace it won't be a peace of course it'll just be a pause before they've built up and and go again as we've seen since this war started in 2014 so that might be what they're aiming for at the moment. And all this all this tactical action is just to keep Ukraine at bay, try and stymie the counteroffensive when it gets going in, in earnest so that they can complete their defensive positions. And this just solidifies or calcifies into a into a horrific protracted conflict like we've seen for the last um, eight or nine years. But yeah, so. UK defence intelligence today just taking that little step back and saying actually there's a lot of there's a lot of heat and light, but there's not an awful lot happening on the ground from Russia in any meaningful military way. Thanks, Tom. I think that's fascinating, and it's good for us occasionally to take a step back and just try and look at this in in the context of months and unfortunately years, rather than just always day to day. So thank you, Dom. Francis, you said at the beginning of this that there's a lot of diplomatic and political updates. So we've split them helpfully into two chunks. What else have you been looking at? 
Thanks, David. Yes, some other interesting developments among Ukraine's Western allies and within Russia's sphere of influence. I'll start with the former. So French President Emmanuel Macron aims to reassure Central and Eastern European countries today about the lasting impact and support that France will offer Europe and Ukraine in its defence strategy and as part of its broader defence priorities. He's giving a speech in Bratislava where he's warning about the steady erosion of European strategic stability and will emphasise, as I say, France's commitment to NATO's eastern flank and its assistance to Ukraine. We understand, we being the Telegraph, that he'll advocate for increased European defence autonomy, obviously an idea, a concept that he's been talking about for a while now, urging greater armament production capacity and defence partnerships within the European Union. He'll also highlight the erosion of European stability as a consequence of Russia's actions, including the violation, of course, of nuclear arms control treaties and the stationing of tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, which I will come to in a moment. He's also going to talk about France and Germany wanting to host a military conference to discuss a proposed European sky shield, their term, and the need for new precision strike capability. I don't think he's wrong about highlighting the vulnerabilities of European defence. The fact is, as we've discussed many times, European countries remain reliant and I mean that, reliant on American support. And if that support wanes, then as things stand, that would have severe consequences, not only for Ukraine, but for the entire defence apparatus of Western and Eastern Europe. Putin is relying on that, and yet there have not been transformative shifts, I don't think, in defence spending that many expected or hoped for or feel they were promised, apart from perhaps Poland, which would mean that weapons support for Ukraine could continue if America were to withdraw support. This isn't simply a question of deterrence. It's about you keeping Ukraine armed. And could Europe feasibly do that? It remains an open question, but I think many people would answer in the negative. For every tank that has been going to Ukraine, for every missile, for every shell, that's one that's been, as things stand, having to leave the depots of, uh, of of European countries. And uh, many people think that they actually do not have an infinite supply and they're right to think that. And so it's really, really important this, that if we think it is conceivable that Western support will perhaps diminish and Europe, certain European countries are absolutely convinced of the importance of Ukraine winning this war, then there has to be a shift, has to be, in European defensive capabilities. And it's, I suppose, a shame that it's taking 18 months for us to get to this point, to perhaps recognise that fact, when actually, you know, this should have been a priority, arguably, from the get-go with the realisation of just how dependent Europe had become on American defence, something, of course, that America has been very sensitive to for some time, not least under Donald Trump's presidency, as we've talked about in the past. But anyway, an interesting subject. Turning to Russia's allies, though, an interesting development in South Africa. So the Telegraph understands that senior South African government figures are urging Pretoria to move on upcoming BRICS summit. And not only that, to actually try and move it to China. So the country (laughs) basically wants to avoid a dilemma where it has to arrest Putin for war crimes. And so leading African National Congress politicians, that's the ANC, 
want the president of the country to skip hosting the Russian leader amid fears that the country's stance over the war in Ukraine is harming its economy. So... On Monday, the government said that it was granting diplomatic immunity to anyone who attended the conference, but denied that it was deliberately shielding Putin, who, of course, faces that arrest warrant from the ICC. But pressure is mounting not only within the AANC, but also the Democratic Alliance Party, which is the official opposition, who've now launched a court action to compel South Africa to act on the warrant if he sets foot in the country. I draw attention to this to counter those who said that the ICC verdict didn't matter at all. We said at the time that certain countries, those perhaps straddling East and West, would now have to think twice and make tough decisions. And so it's proving to host Putin now in many places is embarrassing and potentially politically damaging, both domestically and internationally. So it matters. And so I think those who perhaps were a little bit more sceptical about the implications of this need to look at these kind of examples of, which they are fairly narrow, it has to be said, but they are important ones to seeing how it has a ripple effect when you get a verdict like that. And it leads to a lot of awkward questions for presidents who perhaps want to still maintain a relationship with Vladimir Putin. Not that any of this, of course, will deter Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, who said that there will be nuclear weapons for everyone. That's a direct quote. Should they choose to join a Russia-Belarus union? Statement comes days after the country's defence minister signed the agreement allowing Moscow to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Lukashenko was speaking in Moscow and he told reporters that the movement of the weapons has already begun and then carried on in this interview saying that it must be strategically understood that Minsk and Moscow have a unique chance to unite. He went on. No one is against Kazakhstan and other countries having the same close relations that we have with the Russian Federation. If someone is worried, then it is very simple. Join in to the Union State of Belarus and Russia. That's all. There will be nuclear weapons for everyone. He then expressed his own views and said that whilst this may be his view, it's not necessarily that of the Kremlin, but I think it probably is. I mean, I think he wouldn't have said this necessarily if if he in Moscow, if he didn't think that Putin approved of it. Interesting response from the Kazakh president, though, who's responded to these comments by dismissing the invitation to join any such union. It's quoted as saying on Telegram that he appreciated Lukashenko's joke, but that Kazakhstan was already a member of the Eurasian Economic Union, that being a broader trade bloc headed by Russia, and that no further integration was necessary. As for nuclear weapons, he went on, we do not need them because we have joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. We remain committed to our obligations under these international documents. Ouch. (laughs) Very revealing, I think, of the tensions within the bloc. And I think it's fair to say that's a pretty strong repudiation of Mr. Lukashenko's remarks. I should say that that reference to the non-proliferation treaty has also been made to by Ukraine. And they're saying that it fundamentally undermines the principles of global security, this uh, treaty between Uh, Russia and Belarus that sees nuclear weapons on their soil. So they've been keen to underline that point. But all of this unfortunately shows, I think, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, that the strategic importance of having nuclear weapons has unfortunately been elevated in this war. Ukraine, by not having them, was perceived as a viable target. And Putin's nuclear 
Sabre rattling has elevated weapons status by intimidating countries in the level of support provided to Ukraine. But as I say, we've touched on that. Finally, though, I just want to briefly touch on developments in Kosovo. As we discussed with Dr. Ivana Stradner on this podcast a few weeks ago, Europe has long been complacent about what's going on in the Balkans. But now that clashes in Kosovo with dozens of NATO soldiers sustaining trauma wounds after they were attacked by Serb protesters about the installation of ethnic Albanian mayors threatens a widen disturbance, I think. Serbia is playing a double game. It's flirting with the EU, whilst it's also doing the same with Russia. But Russia thinks that the Balkans are part of the wider Slavic world. There's believed to have been an attempted coup in Montenegro in 2016, where Russian intelligence agents were implicated. And Putin has made a particular point of inflaming tensions between Serbia and Kosovo, drawing Belgrade closer into Moscow's orbit. We're, of course, three decades after the implosion of Yugoslavia. And these recent clashes between Serbia and Kosovo have, I think it's fair to say, reignited some of the lingering ethnic tensions and stern unease in the West about what is going on there. Some are asking, is Putin trying to open up a new front to distract from the war in Ukraine? I think it's quite possible. One only needs to look a few months ago to see Moscow's attempts to sow discord in Moldova on Ukraine's western border. It would make sense to try and distract from the war in Ukraine by stoking tensions there. And I hope to be able to explore the Balkans in more detail again soon. It's somewhere that I think everyone should be paying closer attention to. And whilst we've tried to draw attention to it, with everything else going on, it can be quite tough at times. But this matters. And no doubt it has implications for Ukraine, but also implications to the wider attention that Europe and the West is giving to not only the Balkans, but to other places in Europe at the moment. So stay tuned on that. I will return to it. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. Uh, just to say to listeners as well, Francis, you mentioned President Tokayev of Kazakhstan's remarks this week. We will have our foreign correspondent, James Kilner, an expert in Central in the Central Asian states and the Caucasus, on tomorrow. So I'm sure he'll be talk, taking us through in a lot of detail some of the recent developments in Kazakhstan and Georgia and, and other countries in the region. So do listen tomorrow for James Kilner. Dom, can I come to you? We've got a question here from a listener. It's in some ways quite a simple one, but I think it I think it's quite useful because it'll enable us to go into a little bit more detail on the subject. So they write, when we use terms like wounded and casualty in a war of this ferocity, just how severe is that? One assumes that these classifications are more severe than in many conventional operations. How uniform and therefore how accurate are these definitions? Dom Nichols. Uh, yeah, thanks. And thanks to listeners who sent that in. It is relatively simple in as much as there's not a huge amount of data issued after the individual is categorised as wounded. So let's take a step back. You have a, a soldier or, or a civilian, I suppose, and they, they can be removed from the battlefield in basically four ways. They're killed, they're wounded, they are missing or they are taken prisoner of war. So you know the other side have them, and they then have to be notified through the International Committee of the Red Cross. They then have to have access to the ICRC, so not your, not your local Red Crosses or Red Crescent, but the International Committee of the Red Cross. And um, and yes, you then th- that's how you can arrange prisoner exchanges, mail from home, etc., etc. So that's prisoners of war, or you're missing, so you just just unaccounted for, which might mean that you are that you are dead, and we just don't just don't know it, or anything other you might have been taken prisoner by the other side and they just haven't 
categorise it properly or notify the authorities. So it's missing, wounded, and killed in action. Killed in action is it's very clear if you are if you are a um, you know if you're dead. So wounded, then it, it does cover a, a lot of a lot of different categories. So so within the medical chain, then you could be categorised as walking wounded or SI seriously injured or VSI very seriously injured. But those are medical decisions, and that that determines onward treatment. But all of those things are just listed under the banner and categorised under the and sort of heading in terms of counting as wounded. And you're quite right the question a listener asking this question that some of those could then either, either carry on if you uh, if, if it's not that seriously injured you just have, have treatment and you can then go back into the line or maybe a few weeks months maybe even years that you fight again or add to the military output in some other capacity taking up a staff post in the headquarters not leaving the home base etc etc and that obviously if you are if you are very seriously injured seriously injured and so on you you hopefully will progress and get better and come back through those through those categories back to something approximate to full health so yeah so when you are when we give out these figures which are very infrequent because they are notoriously unreliable and they don't really give a, a great barometer of really what's happening on the ground but we do occasionally stray into the into the figures when we say wounded then yes, of course, that doesn't mean that that individual is no longer going to take any part whatsoever in the war. I mean, it, we need to thank you for asking the question. We do need to cover what these terms mean, but really don't get into the numbers game. I mean, US listeners will know much better than, than me that, that in, in the era, in the years of the Vietnam War, the US, um, US administrations, subsequently, lots of them did get into the numbers game trying to, uh, and they're probably quite accurate, claiming how many killed and wounded there were from the other side but it's irrelevant you know if this if they're still there if they're prepared to take that pain then you know it doesn't matter and if you if you get into the counting game and thinking well we must be doing all right because we we killed so many more of them than they killed of us i mean it might be accurate but it doesn't actually say anything about your your fighting power so we do need to note these and i think as the months have worn on we we view the figures that come out of the official ukrainian channels as reasonably accurate i mean not it would never know for sure, and they would never know for sure. But it's a lot easier to count a tank that's lost its turret and say, "Well, that's definitely one tank that's, that's off off the road," um, than it is than it is personnel. But we think that they are there or thereabouts. But like I say, so we note it for historical purposes, but it, it doesn't actually mean a huge hill of beans in terms of fighting power. There's much more to creating a coherent military force than just the numbers that you've got. I mean, look at the numbers Russia have now. We think they rolled over the border last February the 24th with about 180,000 service personnel. Now, figures from Ukraine, with all the caveats I've just said, are saying a suggestion that, that Russia have got over 200,000 casualties. Remember, I say casualties, killed, wounded, missing, prisoner of war, which is clearly, obviously, more than what they started with. We know they've gone through that first first wave of mobilization, although they wouldn't use the M word, and they're doing everything in their power not to use the M word again. When they did that last time, 500,000 Russian men of fighting age left the country, so they don't want to do that again. But we do know that, uh, that they've brought in a whole load more, of more people. But if you don't train them properly and equip them properly and lead them well, then they are not, they are not an efficient and effective fighting force. Now, this is, this is afflicting both sides to a certain degree, much more so we think Russia than Ukraine. 
but you know, just counting numbers of how many troops you got in the line, how many troops have got green T-shirts on and a, and a gun, brilliant. That doesn't really do it. And equally, counting how many people are dead or wounded, it still doesn't give you an efficient, a really good handle on on where the, the, the states of the forces are. So, yes, we should note these categorise categorizations, but let's not get wrapped up too much on the numbers. Tom, very quickly from me, you mentioned at the beginning of that answer that a lot of this goes through, well, has to go through the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Is that a reason why these definitions are fairly universal then? Because, you know, every side needs to know and the international bodies need to know what what actually being a casualty means. Is, is, is that one of the big reasons? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm on the edge of my jigsaw here, to be perfectly honest. And we need, if there's ICRC personnel listening, please do get in touch because we need to dig into the nuts and bolts of this. But essentially, yeah, if you have signed up to the Geneva Conventions, then you, you give access to, you should give access to the International Committee of the Red Cross whenever they want. I was always told as a, when I was serving in uniform, I mean, these guys carry huge legal weight behind them, the power of the of the UN behind them. I think, have I got that right? Anyway, they have huge legal power behind them, and you, and if you if you try and deny them access to where they want to go, then then you could be personally held up to account for it. So yeah, the ICRC get to go where they want to go, and that is that is to ensure equitable treatment for those personnel who are order combat, which means no longer on the field of battle. You're no longer taking part in combat duties, and you are therefore protected all the all the rights and protections of any anyone serving in the force to which you that have taken you captive so for example if you are taken prisoner you should have the same food as the people who are jailing you you should have access to information access to your family through through letters you should have access to adequate health and sanitation food exercise all that kind of stuff mental health and what have you so those are all stipulated if you sign up for the um, for the geneva conventions and like i say it's the icrc that then enforce that I'm going to stop there because I'm I'm in danger of just running out of road. But uh, this is something that we we definitely need to dig into. And please, as I say, an appeal to to those of you out there who know a lot more about this than uh, than I do. Please do get in touch, and we'll we'll bottom this one out. Absolutely, thank you very much for that, Tom. And I'm sure listeners will be already thinking everything that Dobbins just run us through about how all of those things have come into effect or not. Indeed, in the last year and a half of the war, the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. So I'm sure, actually, in the future, it'd be very good to dig in more into this and just look at how the the Geneva Conventions uh, have been treated in, in in the past year and a half of of the full-scale invasion. Dom and Francis, do you have final thoughts? Francis Durney, would you like to start us off? Thanks, David. It's been a while since I've been able to talk about the issue of kidnapped children and I wanted to return to it today off the back of an interesting piece on the BBC News website by Sarah Rainsford called The Mothers Going to Get Their Children Back from Russia and what's interesting about this is it's less of a discussion about who is responsible and the processes involved in how these children were taken as it is about the lived experience of going through this and Unsurprisingly, it's pretty harrowing stuff. But I do think it's important to flag this because I said many months ago when we were first reporting about the rumours of this, that at some point we would be able to flesh it out, we being collective journalists, and would be able to perhaps more deeply understand the processes involved and how exactly this was able to take place. 
And I think this is another example of some of the more detail that we've more detailed accounts that we've been able to be getting. So it's, one of the stories is about a boy called Sasha. And it says that before the war, Sasha went to a special school in northeastern Ukraine. He was boarding during the week and then returning home at the weekends when Russia invaded in February last year. And much of the Kharkiv region was overrun immediately. And Tetiana, being his mother, kept her son at home for safety. Then September approached and the occupying administration began insisting that all children return to school now with a Russian curriculum. This was pushed in all occupied areas or with teachers using curricula, as I say, from Russia, but also teachers from Russia as well, who refused, who were using the, replaced the locals who refused to collaborate. And Tetiana was one of these parents who was forced to send her child back. And on the 3rd of September, he was dropped off in Kupyansk. Days later, Ukrainian forces launched their lightning operation to retake the region. And she describes her horror at realising that her son was in this school and would potentially be on the front line. And then when she tried to reach her son, she says, we, when we reached the school, only the caretaker was left. We said the, the kids had been taken and no one knew where. And so... It, as I say, it goes on. A teacher who saw what happened saw that Russian soldiers swooped into the school and then essentially spirited the children away to Russia. For six weeks, Tetrana heard nothing. There was no word of the children at all. She says she cried every day. She called the hotline and told them they'd lost her son and wrote to the police. They tried to get them through volunteers, but to no success. Then finally, a friend spotted a video on social media dated from September that reported that 13 children from that special school had been moved east to a similar facility under Russian control. Then another fortnight after that, she heard back from Sasha directly at a special school elsewhere and said that he was able to be visited Apparently, he was very upset on the phone. They told him his home was destroyed and that he was afraid to go back as a consequence. But then, of course, the real saga begins of trying to rescue her child. It had to return him home in person, the route being through the front line, then through Poland and the Baltics before setting foot in Russia, where she was then interrogated by the Russian security services about Ukrainian troop movements. Apparently, it was pitched back there were tech there were checkpoints men in balaclavas with guns i was so scared i took pills to calm me she says and then finally the saga of actually getting the child was achieved but then trying to bring him back was also sounds like a well frankly a hellish experience so as i say i just wanted to flesh out some of the detail of what it's actually like to rescue these children and how these this process began because I know many people were asking, well, why, why did parents not actually have their children with them? And this is why, because these, these children would sometimes be boarding or they would be in special needs schools. And so it would explain how, given the speed in which often these children were taken, such hideous acts were able to take place. So as I say, I would point listeners to that piece and say it is a difficult read, but I think an important one on the BBC website. Thank you very much, Francis. Tom Nichols. Yeah, thanks. I'm actually going to appeal for um, for the for some help from the body of the Kirk. Where do people stand on interviewing members of the Russian state? I'm, I was thinking about this over the weekend. So our, our colleague at the, at the BBC, Laura Kunzberg, interviewed 
Andre Kellyan, who's, who's Russia's ambassador to Britain, for her Sunday morning show. You'll find it on BBC iPlayer Catch Up. You'll see the you'll see the interview there. And I, when I first saw this, I thought, well, I don't. I wasn't sure if I would do that because he's going to spout a load of nonsense. And as we've said before, it's like fighting smoke. You can't meet nonsense with facts because just they just divert, deny, discredit, and so on and so forth. So I wasn't sure about that, but I watched the interview and I thought Lord did a really good job. And in particular, one one moment that I I thought was standout was so Andre Kellin, he likes doing he does this sort of hoo, 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 jokey every now and again as if oh these issues are just so boring, so easy. Can't you just get over yourselves and see the truth for what it is that Russia's been put upon by NATO and drug dealers and all the rest of it? And he does this little chuckle because he's just a folksy good old boy. You could have a beer with him, all this kind of stuff. And it's just it's just that it, it's the whole narrative about. Of course, these people are just like you and Washington and Kiev get all wrapped up about values and what have you. And Laura Kunzberg, when he did this jokey, jokey little shoulder chuckle thing, she said, do you think this is funny? I mean, it was like such proper school matronly, school marmy. I mean, I sat up straight and I was watching it on a sofa at home. But, um, you know, I thought it was great. And he went, oh, no, 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 it's not. It's not funny. It's not funny. And so it wasn't edited. I, I don't I, well, I don't believe it was edited. I think I think he did his jokey thing. She said, do you find this funny? And then he, he said, no, 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 I don't. And, and went off and made whatever nonsense point he was making. But I thought it was good of, of Laura to, to call him out on that. And of course, he didn't get any answers to the very erudite questions that, that she asked and so i'm just wondering if it's worth me reaching out and trying to interview these people what do you think you let me know please i doubt very much if it would happen because apparently i'm in the bad books been sanctioned and blah 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 so they wouldn't want to speak to me they know the kind of reception they'd get but they'd know that anyway with the bbc anyway so there we go i thought laura handled that interview very well i'd recommend you go go back and watch it i think the, yeah, the bbc reporting here steve rosenberg their bbc guy in moscow I said, amazing reporting that he's putting out and do follow him on twitter please so some really good reporting there i thought she did very well to call out andre kellin i just wonder from your point of view would you like me to reach out to try and speak to speak to kellin get him on the pod i'm really in two minds because i don't see the value necessarily in it other than having you listen to an interview when i say x and he answers y and we don't get anywhere but anyway i appeal to you the body of the kirk what do you reckon Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.